I'm Dooner. That's the dude. This is What the Truck. Hey, happy All Saints Day from Freight Alley, my friend. So if you caught our Halloween show, a very What the Truck Halloween, you can watch on the Freightways TV app if you missed it. But we got all dressed up. We had our Squid Game costumes. Yeah. I took mine out on the town when I was taking the kids out yesterday. And look what I came across. Throw this picture up here. You know the uh, red light, green light doll? Throw that picture up there. You know that red light, green light doll? That one. (laughs) That one right there. No, there it is. You know that red light, green light doll? Yeah. Someone one house had that over there. It was awesome. That is very cool, dude. The only bad thing is I got stuck at that house for like 15 minutes because people wanted to take pictures. They thought like I was part of the display. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Like time. you were the live guy. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Dude, I wore mine out to a Halloween, uh, to a haunted house on Saturday night. How'd it go? Oh, dude, I just stopped uh, photo ops like crazy. Yeah. Like crazy in line, like all, all the time, like 15, 20 of them. Well, beautiful. My yeah, dog's for awesome. holiday too. Check her out. She dressed up like a mermaid. She was impatient all day uh, getting, she's impatient all day sitting. Check out my dog dressed like the mermaid over here. She there was uh, impatient is. all day. She wanted to go out there. Everyone loves it. Her favorite one because she has like an excuse to go to every doorstep. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And everyone's like, hey, you look so beautiful. You oh, yeah. Attention oh, like crazy. She's all over it. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I'm all over today's show. We're going to get some some questions answered, right? About okay. how an inland port can help the Port of Long Beach and maybe Port of LA and help with the congestion and the shipping crisis. I like it. We're going to get an update on what's going on in e-commerce with ship heroes Aaron Rubin. Very Big cool. time, especially Very like cool. surcharges coming yeah, yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, warehouse yeah. space getting tight. Prologue just put out. I think that there was, uh, they're almost completely out of warehouse space. And I think in the Inland Empire, it was like 0.7% yeah, vacancy. Yeah, I saw that. 0.7. Yeah, That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was terrible. And we're also going to be talking to Alan Adler about some EV credits. Maybe you'll be getting a Ford F-150 Lightning. Ooh, I'd like to. Uh, you for know Christmas, or reserving one at least, because I think you might be able to get that for like $27,000. Now, a lot of cool <sighs> stuff. Let's tip the band, though, and we will get into it. Let's see here. What do we got this month? Oh, it's Redwood. Okay. Redwood, a leading logistics platform company, has provided solutions for moving and managing freight for more than 20 years. The company's diverse portfolio includes digital freight brokerage, flexible freight management, and innovative platform services such as El Pass and Redwood Connect. Fill the gaps between logistics and technology. Contact Redwood at Tell them, Dude. Hey, go to redwoodlogistics.com immediately after this show. Hey, I've got an exciting guest today, and this, this gentleman has an amazing background. So he worked for the Port of Los Angeles for yeah. years, right? Almost a decade over at Port of Los Angeles. Now he's the executive director of the Utah Inland Port Authority. Just struck a deal with Port of Long Beach to get things done. It's Jack Hedge. Jack, thanks for joining us today. Morning, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Jack, uh, introduce yourself to us who, who have not met you. I've looked through your background. It looks amazing. It looks mm-hmm. like you're the man for the job over in Utah. But for those who may not know, take us a, give us a walk through the park here on you. Well, you, you mentioned I worked for the uh, Port of Los Angeles for a number of years, was there for about almost eight years. And prior to that, was at the Port of Tacoma uh, for about the same amount of time, about seven or eight years. So I've got a little bit of, uh, of experience uh, running around the ports and, and port logistics uh, for the last decade or so. Uh, and got here to Utah about two years ago. The, uh, the legislature here created Utah and Port Authority. Uh, statewide entity and stood it up to try to deal with logistics and and uh, cargo goods movement issues uh, in and through the state of Utah. So I've been here about two years, two and a half years trying to put this together. Yeah. So when they set that up, Jack, and welcome to the show, by the way, um, is it still in the planning phases reading through it? Is it moving through for uh, operations or is it still in the planning phases as far as putting together the inland port? 
So with our, our initial location, we did our, our, our planning effort, kind of that first year that I was here, we've got that up and running. Uh, that, that area is built around the existing intermodal ramp here in, in Utah, here in Salt Lake mm-hmm. City, uh, development area around that. Uh, and we're trying to enhance, you know, rail movements and, and truck movements to and from the to and from that that uh, that location, with transloading and 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 container storage and some of the things that you really need to have to to really be able to provide that inland port type uh, facility and service and support of our our coastal ports and goods movement to and from our coastal ports. Now, for folks who are only familiar with using the coastal ports, as you just mentioned, there, what is an inland port, and how would a shipper go about using one? Well, an inland port really is kind of that, uh, typically they're connected to a single port. Uh, think of Greer, South Carolina, or, or something like that as a, a fairly famous one. And that really supports, you know, operations at the Port of Charleston and creates a, a real streamlined ability to move cargo in and out of the Port of Charleston. We're very similar in that regard. We're far enough inland to be able to, uh, to really be a good rail move from the coastal ports. We're about 800 miles inland from LA Long Beach, from Oakland and from SeaTac, from Seattle Tacoma. Uh, so we, we provide that. So we're kind of uniquely positioned. We can provide that backland support, that uh, kind of that value added, that cargo staging, that uh, forward deployment sort of aspect of, of what you need backlands for. Um, a good rail move away from the, from the ports, uh, about a day's rail move away from the port. So we actually can provide that for all three of the major West Coast gateways. Yeah, so uh, Jack, um, why Utah? What major markets are you are you servicing there? Once the, the comes in there, so what what region of I guess uh, importers would want to use that that uh, inland port right there? Well, there's actually a couple of couple of reasons why uh, Utah. First of all, if if you took the the U.S. and put it up on a on a on a turned it up on its end like that. All of that West Coast roads, all the rail, everything else kind of funnels down through Utah on its way to the Midwest. Mm. So so shippers who are moving cargo from the Midwest to the West Coast and vice versa uh, have an interest in Utah and what we're doing here because it's that good midway point. Uh, and, and where all the traffic goes, where all the, all the cargo is flowing through. Um, if you're in the Intermountain West region and you're a producer or you're an importer trying to distribute in this region, this is also the right place to be. Uh, we've got you know the, the I-80 corridor, the I-15 corridor, and the I-84 corridor all come together right here. Uh, the major transcontinental uh, rail routing for, for the UP comes, comes through here. So it's a major sort of... Um, transshipment transfer point between the Midwest, between Chicago and, and the West Coast ports. Now, Jack, I used to do customs brokerage for years. And um, is there an advantage for coming into the port of Long Beach? I mean, because you don't have to clear it there, right? You could cut an IT, you could take it to your inland port and you could clear it there and you could worry about any customs delays over there and at least get out of that congestion. Is that one of the advantages, too? Yeah, that is. And, and you know, so that may, if you can if you can clear the docks, uh, clear the, the, the rail system, at the, at the coastal ports more efficiently, move it in here. It can still come here in bond. And we do have FTZ status here in, in, in Utah at the inland port. So theoretically, you could clear your customs here. You could have your inspections done here. You could do all that kind of thing as well. There's, there's some existing transload capacity in, in, in this market. We're looking at adding more uh, to be able to handle more of that and, uh, and combine that with increased customs inspection and, and uh, uh, fulfillment here in this market, everything else. So, Jack, what kind of uh, uh, infrastructure investment do you have to make for, for this type of uh, an inline uh, port there in, in, in Utah? 
Yeah, so at the at the at the primary location, like I said, there's already there's an existing intermodal rail ramp. It's at about half of capacity, so we've got some room to grow in that. So the types of things we're looking at doing are what kind of rail enhancements can we make that that get those unit trains in and out better, um, allows us to land more and 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 block those trains faster. So improving rail access in in here, uh, building some additional transload capacity. The other thing we're really short on here uh, in this market is truck parking, uh, places for for drivers to park. And and you know uh, when they when they hit their EOS every day, they've got to stop wherever they can stop. So we need more parking in this in this market. Uh, we're going to add about 250 300 spaces. Uh, in phase one of our transload facilities. So those, that's kind of the, the, the things that we're doing. Plus we're building out a, a, our own 5G network uh, that will allow for, for better data collection and data transparency for people moving goods through the inland port uh, to and from this, this destination. Uh, and when you've got about, you know, about 23% of the truck VMT per year being traveled in your state, uh, that, that ability to provide uh, data uh, uh, really supporting the trucking industry is really key to, to, to trying to do that, and trying to achieve what we're trying to achieve, which is more efficiency, greater fluidity in the whole system. Yeah, I mean, and the system is uh, it's struggling right now, especially in SoCal. You have seven years of experience over there. What are, in, from your experience there, what do you think some of the challenges are in unwinding this? We've heard a lot of different perspectives, but you have a, an actual sort of boots on the ground one, and you're very familiar with operations over there. Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, you know, quite frankly, you can't, there, there's no more land there, right? There's no place to expand. There's no place to grow. There's incremental little places here and there that you can do some things in. But quite frankly, the land is just too valuable and too expensive and in such, in such short supply to actually make a, a kind of a major shift in that regard. And the ports have always sort of run at, at, that, at, that, at that incremental marginal um, uh, capacity, right? It's a just-in-time system, and, that, and the system was built that way. But we've, we shifted from a just-in-time economy to a just-in-case economy, and that's really what has overwhelmed the system. Um, so I think actually making better use of the entire system, of the entire network, utilizing capacity like we have here in Utah is a really good way to try to address some of these issues in the short term and possibly make some, some more fundamental shifts in how we move goods inland from the, from the ports uh, so that we don't have these kinds of issues coming up again. Because again, you're really constrained there. Traffic is already bad. Uh, you've got 13 terminals. You're trying to move goods around in between. Uh, make it more fluid. Get the get get stuff off the dock and make it as fluid as possible. Uh, and that's really what we're stood up to try to do. So, Jack, talk about that a little bit. Is is the um, why the rail? Why is it faster to get uh, freight or the containers out of there? What's the percent difference, right, w w uh, or, or the efficiency gain that can be had by by implementing this? Well, when you're when you're trying to pick up boxes, you know, by by truck and move them to the Inland Empire and then transload them, and then move that cargo into this market by truck, and about ninety percent of our cargo into this location today comes in by truck from Southern California. There's, there's just inherent inefficiency in that. It's just the single truck move out of the gate, uh, the transloading in, in Southern California, all of those touches and all of those transfers add time and add cost to the system. If we can identify the cargo that is that needs to come into this market, that's destined into this market anyway up front, and take that intact box and move that box more rapidly by rail in here, 
you take some congestion out of the system at, 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 at LA Long Beach, but you also move it in here with fewer touches, uh, less, less transfer time, do that, that work here. It's, it's less expensive here. The land is less. The, 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 uh, and just moving it by rail, that distance, about 800 miles, uh, is we can get here in one day by rail. It just speeds the whole system up and makes cargo flow through that. It, it provides a little bit of a relief valve for the, uh, the coastal ports to, to, to try to move that cargo in here intact. Yeah. Well, his background to your experience is in that real estate over by by the ports over there. Right. So mm-hmm. you're you are very familiar in the capabilities of what they can do and what they can't do in the physicality that exists there. And you mentioned the bottleneck and you can't increase the entry point. Right. You can take these subplots yeah. and you can make you can make it thicker. It can fill with more water or with more containers. But if you don't increase the entry point, you're still going to have the same exact bottlenecks. And in Los Angeles, I mean, that's a sprawled out area. It's just it's just all urban sprawl. There's not a yeah. ton of like undeveloped area. And it takes mm-hmm. an hour to go any direction in to get 15 miles away in any direction um is there is there any hope over in in los angeles for expanding the space over there or is it really it look it's a challenge and it's a mountain it's a mountain it's a mountain there there's incremental space here and there you know 10 acres here five acres there things like that but they're they're again they're fragmented and sort of scattered there's not sort of a a, you know one big area that you could you could actually repurpose and, and, and do something like this with. And quite frankly, there's higher and better use for some of that land than container storage or, or, or a chassis depot or something like mm. that. So that's always been the challenge and will continue to be the challenge there. And that's why we think an inland port uh, makes a lot of sense. It, those, those sort of functional aspects that you need to have to make that seaport, to make the dock work more efficiently, move it further inland so it's more uh, it's a more appropriate place to do that kind of work. And that's really what I think is the value of, of the inland port. And, and being able to, to provide that kind of level of support to LA Long Beach, to Oakland, to Seattle, Tacoma, that's really unique in the U.S. And so if you're a, if, if you're, if you're a freight forwarder or, or, you're a, or, or you're a shipper or you're a, a BCO, this is actually a good place to think about consolidating your, your, your loads. Uh, how do you redistribute out of here? Can you get even bringing them here and going back toward the coast, toward those big markets in Southern California, things like that. There's a lot of folks looking at that kind of aspect of things. So it's getting it, getting out the dock, get it inland so you can work it and then get it out to where it needs to be from here. Yeah. So, Jack, I, you, you know, you're, you're talking about the value of this. It seems like it, it might be a solution uh, for, to the problem that we have is developing more of these inland ports. When you start talking about you know, it's a one to three intermodal car to trucks, right? Yeah. One intermodal car takes right. three trucks off the road. The fuel efficiency reduces your carbon footprint. Uh, you reduce the, the strain on chassis at the reports, all that kind of things. Should we be right. looking at this and more and more of these, not just in Utah? Absolutely. I mean, I think we should look at these and, and you see them more on, in the eastern U.S. and you certainly see this a lot in Europe. Mm. Uh, but in the western U.S., this is a relatively different concept because uh, I think, frankly, we've always used the, the freeways, the distance on the freeways and the distance on the rail lines as kind of that 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 uh, that interim storage space that, mm. that, that you know was able to kind of suck out and keep things moving. But, yeah, we should be looking at more of this. There's uh, the, there, there's a couple of uh, facilities like this now being developed up in British Columbia in support of uh, Port of Vancouver and, and Prince Rupert. We need to be looking at more of this. And some of it can be a, a little bit inland uh, into uh, uh, you know, areas, 
the Inland Empire arguably is this kind of thing, but doesn't really have the rail connectivity. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of becomes a question of, well, how far inland do you move it to make it efficient to move by rail versus, you know, the, the truck move? And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're far enough inland that that rail move really does make a lot of sense. Um, but all the things that you've talked about, too, are critically important. Being able to reduce the, the truck vehicle miles traveled reduces air emissions, reduces you know, uh, a congestion on our roads. And in an area like Salt Lake, where we've got, we're, we're sitting in a bowl and we've got inversions, man, getting air emissions out of the air is critically important to us. So every, every incremental well car we can put on uh, a train that takes three trucks off the road, that's a big impact for us. That makes mm -hmm. a lot of difference. Yeah, I mean, anybody, I'm from Boston. Anybody who's done, um, who's worked with freight in Boston is probably very familiar with ICA Worcester because Conley Terminal, our, our port over there, it's not connected to the train. So you got to go about, you know, 45 minutes to an hour yeah. out over to Worcester and that's where you get yeah. the train access. But you're usually ITing over there and, and um, you're clearing the freight over there and doing the yeah. translos and all that stuff from, from that uh, thing. Well, let's talk about one more aspect of real estate since you're familiar. Now, we go to this port. Is there going to be warehousing infrastructure? Is there going to be D.C. infrastructure? Yeah. Are we going to see trucking companies start forming and putting locations around this area? What's the build out now and what could it be? So, yeah, so we've got uh, you know, our, our initial acreage here in Salt Lake City. There's about 7,500 acres of developable property. But in and around that area, that total area is the largest concentration of, of warehouse distribution space per capita, probably in the nation. There's already about 250, 300 million square feet of warehouse space here today. And we're building out about five to 10 million square feet a year. And, and our absorption rates look like Southern California. Uh, it's just it's just crazy. So we're that uh, warehouse distribution space is getting added incrementally uh, over, as, as demand uh, as demand surges. And it has surged here quite a bit. It's also the biggest uh, home for trucking, uh, probably in the U.S. I mean, you've got, you know, Sierra England is, is headquartered here and, and Knight and, and other folks as well. And so that long haul trucking piece, as well as the, the, the shorter haul, the drage trucking, is really a critical part of our economy. Uh, and, and, and we are a big hub for that. Uh, in the Intermountain West. So we've got, I think, a lot of, we've got the truck power, we've got the warehouse distribution capacity, and more to come, on, come along. Uh, and then as we start looking around the state, because we are a statewide entity, as we start looking around the state at these other locations around the state for satellite ports and other commodities and other goods movement, uh, we, get, we, we can bring those forces to bear on that as well. So I think we've got the pieces in place. Uh, I think there's some things that we can do from an infrastructure standpoint that help. But uh, but we certainly have all the pieces in place now. Wow. Well, Jack, you know, good luck. We, we need we need the help over uh, our shippers need the help over at the port. I think the port, everyone does. Everyone yeah. is, is the help this year. And it looks like it's going to be into next year. So we're not looking for temporary fixes. We need long term infrastructure. We need long term right. solutions and we have to support it and we have to build around it. So people who want to support Utah Inland Port, how do they get more information and how do they know when they can start sending their stuff over there? We start sending it today. You know, we announced last week this new, this uh, you know, this this enhanced service with the UP Railroad out of the ports of uh, LA Long Beach, out of San Pedro Bay. You can start using that service today, uh, and and talk to your freight forwarder about how to you know how to how to access uh, the area. But there, we're 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 in operation. We're up and running now. So 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 that's to get started. If you want to find out more about the Port Authority, you can look at uh, inlandportauthority.utah.gov. That's our website. Our strategic plan is on there. It talks about the the, the jurisdictional area. It talks about our our business plans. 
uh, and talks about some of the companies that are already here and, and, and located and, and, and being successful. So um, we, we encourage everybody to take a look at that and and, uh, and then follow up with us. If you've got any questions or any comments or any thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Jack, thank you. Sounds like uh, Utah's in good hands. Good luck with the port. And I hope some shippers start utilizing this sooner than later. Another solution for them. I hope you all listen closely here. Thanks one more time, Jack. Thank you very much, guys. Take it easy. All right, let's bring uh, Alan Adler up. He's our Detroit Bureau Chief over here at Freightways. He hasn't been on for a while. I see him on Freightways now, you know, on Tuesdays and yeah, Thursdays. I get to talk to him when you were there. So I feel yeah, like I hear from him all the time anyway. But here he is now for those of you who don't watch now. Alan, thanks for joining us. Wait. But they should watch now. Yeah, I was going to say, who's, Alan, who's now watching now? I don't who's know. Who's not watching? watching? I Except don't know. Yeah, well, I watch it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I watched. Oh, so this is this is a Ryan Zimmerman one. This is the one that they were going to give away at the Nationals game, right? And they put out that big release. They put out that big graphic of him on a container ship, and they said, if you come to the stadium, you are not going to get this bobblehead. You're going to get a voucher for it. Um, so I talked to the team over there, and I talked to someone who was out that way, and they got a voucher, and they got it for me. And now this is like our little shipping crisis mascot right here. It's a Ryan Zimmerman. You know, I missed the Bryce Harper giveaway for the bobblehead at Nationals Park. <laughs> A few years ago, because oh. I wasn't one of the first ten thousand. We we didn't get there in time. So well, that's what you get for being a laggard. You know, that's what you get for I know, being a laggard. I, know. I got a Joey Votto lookouts. Ellen, what candy, <laughs> Andy? I don't. You don't have. Uh, I don't think you're you go trick or treating anymore unless you're going by yourself. But when you were going through the the trick or treat bag, what what fun size bar are you you grabbing for yourself? I I always played for the big stuff and the kids who did not come to our house last night missed out because I give away the big bars. I'm the the good guy. Right. And nobody came to our apartment last night. So unfortunately, I'm going to eat all of them because my wife's not going to. So I'll take care of it. Okay, I'm going to make one quick argument against the big bars, though. So when you have the fun size bars, right, you can eat like 50 of those. Yeah. You can eat like 50 yes. of those, and it's totally fine oh, and normal. Free. But Kill if you free. ate, but like two, so you eat like 50 fun size peanut butter cups, but if you just took two of them in the, in the regular one, yeah. if you ate like 25 packages of peanut butter cups like that, you'd be disgusted by yourself. You, you, you would <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you would hurl. <laughs> but the fun size bars just defy physics. Well, Alan, yeah, you're you right. know. You're, you're absolutely right. And I, I think my favorites are, are actually Nestle Crunch bars because you kind of get two bites out of it. You know, it's it's a good thing. So Vince and I were talking about this and he was we were like, should I cancel the the Cybertruck pre-order? There's yeah, this new yeah. tax credit that's coming out. And, you know, there was a seventy five hundred dollar one. But now there's also this forty five hundred dollar union car maker bonus that's really going to. It sounds like it really accelerate this EV market, especially as cars are like really expensive right now. Alan, tell us a little bit about this and what this might do to the uh, the industry and for, for OEMs like Ford. Yeah. Okay. So, so obviously it's a, it's a sweetener for the Detroit three, for, for those yeah. who are going to build these vehicles here. Uh, I did look up one thing before I came on and that was, you know, just how many of these credits, the $7,500 credits did Tesla get before it ran out? And it was 200,000 mm-hmm. and they ran out a little over a year ago. So if you buy a Tesla today, you don't get the federal uh, tax credit, you know, the, uh, the, which can be up to $7,500. Um, that's a really sweet deal. GM almost ran out because of the Bolt and and even the Volt before that. I'm not exactly sure where they stand. This new program, though, is discriminating against Tesla, I suppose, in the sense that, uh, yeah, they're they're American made, but they also had a big uh, boost early on in, the, in you know, being the first mover with electric vehicles. Um, I don't know, Dooner, how much of somebody have out of $100 credit matters if you're going to spend three or $400,000 on, on an electric semi. 
And that's assuming, as you and I both know, we ever see the semi. So, uh, you know, I think I think for a Model Y or a Model, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Model Three, um, it's it's a great deal. There is something there was at forty five hundred, I think, uh, instead of you know, there, there's the sweetener goes to the Detroit companies. So yeah, I think overall it does boost the um, boost the electric vehicle uh, incentive space. Of course, we have to get that legislation through, right? I mean, it's not there yet. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, Alan, wait, wait you, you said they almost ran out of these credits. Is there a finite number of these credits? One. And, yes. OK, there is. Now, two, is is it is it for uh, um, uh, commercial purchases as yeah. well? Um, you know, there haven't been commercial trucks to speak of, so I'm not even sure if it applies. I, I think well, it probably well, does. But it we, says here. It, it does. Yeah. Oh, it does. Yeah, it I, says there it does. But when you think about it, you've got an offset right away because you have the federal excise tax on trucks. So, you know, you're, you're paying extra anyway. Another, you know, was it, uh, is it, is it 12%, I think, that you, that you pay for the federal excise tax. So I guess my point is that even if it's available for these trucks and you wouldn't turn it away, uh, the fact is that, um, you know, against the price of, you know, a new class eight truck, uh, it's probably not a deal breaker, right? I mean, you know, if you can get it, it's $27,000 for an F-150 Lightning is a pretty sweet deal. Well, that's what I was going to say. The the F-150, their biggest sales is to contractors and so on, right? Especially the the $27,000 model now, right? Right, and suburban debt. Ford should be in good shape, guys. Ford Ford should be in good shape because they haven't sold near as many electric vehicles as, obviously, Tesla or GM. I mean, GM has moved quite a few Chevy Bolts uh, over the last few years, you know, somewhere I'm sure north of 200,000 because they've recalled all of them uh, because of the battery fires. But, uh, uh, yeah, and then they had, you know, Volt sales before that. (laughs) That's always a good selling point, too. Now, (laughs) with semiconductor shortage, I was just looking through your article here on Daimler Truck Group. They said they have more orders than ever on their book, but their earnings took a hit because they can't make the actual truck. So these EV credits are great, but are are there any that are going to be delivered? Like what's going on right now with the semiconductors? I, I, yeah, you know, I think I think it's getting worse. I mean, the, the term that I heard during the earnings on the truck makers uh, last week or so has been lack of visibility. You know that term. That basically means we have no idea what's going on. And so, you know, they don't know. They don't know when they're going to get meaningful numbers of, of semiconductors. Story today, though, that I that just posted this morning, guys, that I think is really important is is something that I think maybe Daimler got caught on, and that is they're going to end the Western Star fifty seven hundred. Not exactly a a name that everybody knows. It's a, it's an upscale Freightliner Cascadia, and they're going to end production at the end of the year. Well, what they've quietly done, and although it's not so quiet now, is they started canceling orders for trucks that were out there because the same chipsets and, and a lot of the same componentry that goes on that truck goes on the Cascadia. They don't have enough. And so uh, we heard from a guy in Pennsylvania who's single order for a Western Star truck got canceled uh, a week ago. And of course, he's very upset and don't blame him. He said it took a two month delay. That didn't bother me because I know everybody's got problems with the supply uh, constraints. He said, but when they canceled, he said, I can't go in there and get a truck. He said, there aren't any. He said, I go back to Volvo. They said, sure, we'll get you a truck in 2023. He ordered two Freightliner Cascadias for delivery in the fourth quarter next year. So this is a big deal. It's going on. And I don't think they really know where the end of it is right now. So, Alan, does anybody what's this ripple effect? What's the bullwhip on this for the used truck market, et cetera, going down a pike? I mean, you've got people paying a hundred grand for a truck that cost 50,000 or 45,000 just 18 months ago. They're not going to be turning those in anytime soon. They've got a thousand dollar note on these suckers. So what does that do to the market? 
What does that do to the market right. in a year? Well, uh, two things, I think, you know, uh, excuse me, Michael, and, and one of them we don't really know the impact of, and that is, you know, if you think of a four-year trade cycle, four to five years, 400, 500,000 miles, right? That's when you trade your truck and, you know, you, you sort of yeah. get new equipment. Well, now maybe you're going to go out another year. Let's just call it a year, okay? So that's another 100,000 miles, roughly. And now these trucks are even older when they come in with higher miles and they're out of warranty because a lot of these guys will buy a five-year warranty on the truck and that kind of thing. So I think it's going to change the entire uh, dynamic at that end. Um, but what's happening with used trucks right now, I love what this guy told me uh, from AKA Trucking. He says, you know, he said, we bought three 2019 Freightliner Cascadias in 2019. He said, we paid 135000 each. He said, there's an auction house, and the name has escaped me, it's in my story, that just sold a 2019 Freightliner Cascadia for the same amount of money. The only difference is it had 400,000 miles on it. So what's that tell you, right? I mean, you know, this thing is is, is insane, right? Yeah. Alan, tell us this. So we got one more thing to look at here, and let's put a side-by-side. We get a picture of the Nikola and the Tesla. Throw that on the screen, please. So there's the patent suit going on, right? Bloomberg reports that Nikola asked for more time, though. They want more time to, for some reason, to go through this suit because their their founder or their is, uh, what, under indictment. So what's going on with this suit? The car doesn't need the – the Nikola 1 doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore. What is the point of this? Yeah. I, here's, here's what's going to happen in January, in my opinion, and you know that's always valuable. My <laughs> opinion is there's not going to be a suit after January. It's over. Okay. I don't know exactly why it got pushed out from October. They did administratively close the case, but the judge said, look, uh, Nicola, you better come back and tell us what's going on. What we did learn in reporting that though, Bloomberg, the Bloomberg report is part of it. But the other thing we found out is we actually have a trial date for, for Trevor, which is April 4th of next year. Mm. He's trying to get his trial moved out of New York uh, to either Utah where he lives or to Arizona where Nicola is based. Um, I'm not, I couldn't tie those two together directly in truck talk on Friday. But so I reported them in the same item, but separately. And, you know, it could be it could be that since this was one of Trevor's constructs, right? I mean, the whole suit against Tesla, you know, he he had an Elon Musk thing going on. And I think that suit, because Tesla's changed the design of its truck and Nikola is not making the Nikola one on which the suit is based. I'm not sure where there is a story or a suit, I should say. Yeah, I, well, I didn't understand it to begin with. Hey, I mean, when they both have 10 tires. There is the similarity. Well, good news for Trevor. <laughs> if he was listening, he can at least use that inland port over in Utah. Yeah, now. there you go. Yeah. Hey, Alan, thank you. Uh, thanks for very much for joining us. How did people read your article, Truck Talk, and catch up with you? Okay, so Truck Talk, you can get on the FreightWaves.com site. Just go go to the newsletters page, and you can click on there and get it. You can read my stuff at A, uh, at, uh, a. Adler at FreightWaves.com. If you've got a tip, as we did get the one on this cancellation stuff with the 5700s, uh, you can send that to me directly if you like. We'd love to hear if there's more of that going on out there. Uh, we think anecdotally that there is. Um, we don't know, but if you know something out there, folks, um, let us know. We want to follow this. We think it's a it's a real story. And what it does is it's showing how the impact is getting personal around the supply chain. Price. Thanks, Alan. Um, Thank uh, you. We were looking for a web link, my man. We were yeah. looking for a web link. Right. Should I give you one? I'm just kidding. It's yes, too late now, man. Got to you got gonged. I just had to play uh, the Oscar music for you because I got to step inside the dojo with our next guest. <laughs> See you later, Alan. I'll catch you next time. All right, Aaron Rubin, he's founder and CEO at Ship Eero, but he's got a really cool backstory too, and one that I knew nothing about, and so I started looking into Aaron's background, and one of the reasons I started looking into his background is because he promised us cookies, although they're not here yet. Aaron, how are you doing, man? Doing, yeah, what's going on? How's it going? I'm good. 
<laughs> and, well, hey, we were looking at your background, and you were a—you've been a founder since you were in school, right? You started a uh, jujitsu company, and you learned—I I imagine fulfillment and e-commerce in this way. Tell us a little bit about that journey that led you to Shapiro. Yeah, I uh, started a martial arts business as a side business in college, made a couple extra bucks, took off, dropped out of school because I was making more money for my business. I was going to make getting a job as a computer programmer. Ran that forever, like 14 years. And I was always focused on the logistics part. There weren't any good solutions. We shipped out of one warehouse in New York to California. We'd have to UPS second day air it. It was just like really inefficient. Uh, so I decided to create a company, Shipiro, to solve that problem and give people distributed logistics with better software. Wow. So that's that was a start going into the ship, Shapiro. That's really cool. First time I looked at this, I was like, man, a seven million dollar a year dojo. That's a heck of a dojo. Yeah. But you were actually shipping equipment and moving that stuff around. So you guys just raised 50 million dollars just a little bit ago to expand your e-fulfillment uh, network. Talk, talk about that a little bit. What was that like? Yeah, uh, we did a raise earlier this year from one investor, Riverwood Capital, um, who were, who've been great, by the way. I was super worried about taking money, but so far, so good. Uh, good. They've been – so the reason we took the money was to expand. We were profitable, so which was weird. Talk to VCs. They're like, they don't believe you when you tell them you're profitable. <laughs> um, but um, – yeah, we raised from them to do some expansion. We've announced one acquisition so far, which was Cargo Cove Fulfillment in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, got a couple of more. Hopefully, we'll be closing this year and we'll be announcing uh, some other uh, 3PLs that we've acquired, all on the warehousing side. Nice. So a little shopping, a little M&A with your, with your VC money. Why Cargo Cove? What do they do to enhance what Shapira does? So they're a customer of our software and have been for like four years, one of our early customers. And they have the uh, one of the highest unit pick and unit pack per hour per employee. So super efficient. So we wanted to learn from them. We took their uh, owner and he's now the VP of our fulfillment operations. So he's overseeing all the warehouses. Um, and they also, it's a great facility. Jacksonville is a great location to get you can get to all the way to Southern Florida in one day and then also cover like Georgia and the rest of the Southeast. So from location wise, it's the best spot. And if you want to go lease a warehouse of like the scale we need, it's 200,000 square feet in Jacksonville. Like good luck, like everything's taken. So um, acquisition is the way to get into the market. So uh, I, I'm interested, Aaron, in in, in past the uh, the dojo and the jujitsu, uh, where you're actually trying to solve your own fulfillment, right? So you were computer programming, you were you're studying it, and now you've got software, and you guys actually physically do fulfillment. Which came first? Did you go after this to try and solve this from the physical, actual distribution of your own goods, or from the uh, computer linking and that transparency and data exchange? Yeah, so software first. So we were software only for the first okay. several years. We work with lots of we work with Shopify, Canadian Tire, Universal Music Group, lots of people on the software side. Um, and then from a physical transport perspective, what we were seeing is most people were using a single warehouse. So like ninety percent of SKUs were in a single warehouse. So people were still shipping from their warehouse in you know Pacific Northwest to their customer in Miami. And we're like. It has to be better. It has to be a better approach. We want things to go by truck, not by plane. Better for the environment, cheaper. Uh, so we decided to build our own network. And the way it works is customers send all their product to a single one of our warehouses near one of the ports. We then take that. We cross-stock it. We send it to a bunch of warehouses around the country so that when their customer orders, 
we can send it from a close warehouse, get it there, doesn't have to get on a plane and it still gets there in one to two days. Now, Aaron, you know, during the shipping crisis, something that that's come up and um, we were even talking about it back in like May of last year. And it's like, are we going to switch from a just in time to a just in case kind of structure? And you see all these people arguing, well, it's our just in time nature here. And that led to it. But I also look at the warehouse space in the United States of America. And if we were to radically have a paradigm shift of or even have like a five percent paradigm shift to just in, in case versus just in time, where does it go? Isn't warehouse space really tight right now? Super tight. If you're a warehouse owner, you're like the smartest person in the world because you have all the power in the, these negotiations. Now, there's definitely no room today. I think the other problem is the um, tax perspective on it. You pay for stock. Uh, you pay for the value of that inventory when you bring it in. Um, so it's just not efficient tax-wise to be sitting on a lot of stock. That makes sense. So um, I just I don't see it really changing um, short a little bit at the margins, but I think people are still sticking with the way they've always done it. And just in time is here to stay. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it gets subsidized for certain items uh, for from the government or something like that sure. that are necessary and stuff like that. But 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 not moving forward there. So you said you look like the smartest person in the world if you own a capacity uh, right now, the warehouse capacity. If I go out and buy a million square feet uh, today, how smart do I look in uh, three years? I think pretty smart. Uh, if you can okay. find the space available, yeah, I think prices are going up. And we just man, there was one we we got a two hundred thousand square foot facility in Nevada recently. And I thought that negotiation was bad. We just did one. We're middle of one right now where the seller's agent came in with a price, 10 year commit. And I think we're going to end up with a price 25 cents higher than what they initially asked for. Like it is the market's just going straight up, straight north right now. Well, labor's got to be tough, too. Amazon, uh, I think the stat we saw last week was something like during the pandemic, they've hired 650,000 warehouse workers. They want to hire another quarter million seasonal workers. They're offering things like $22 an hour, $3,000 sign-on bonuses. If you've tried to hail an Uber recently or you've gotten Uber Eats and had things dropped, I think a lot of those people are going into the warehouse and taking advantage of, of some of this money. But for everyone else who isn't Amazon, what kind of impact is this having? Yeah, I wanted to put something together for Twitter where I added all the expected hires during peak and show that there's more expected hire than there are people available to be hired. There just isn't <laughs> enough available right now. Uh, it's brutal. And, and the one thing I'm worried about is they have these signing bonuses and that people who are like, hey, it's it's you know Christmas, gifts, gift giving time. They're going to jump to an Amazon facility or someone else who's doing like a $3,000 signing bonus because you know they want to get that bonus. And um, I think, you know, Amazon churns a lot of people because people don't necessarily like working there on the front lines. People tend to not last a long time there. Um, but those signing bonuses are appealing. I don't think everyone else has as much trouble as them because people tend to prefer to work at sort of the midsize companies. Um, but there's definitely a shortage of labor. And I mean, it's good for employees who are getting paid more. I think the biggest problem is people jumping for those signing bonuses, you lose continuity, which makes it more difficult, right? So you keep hiring new people because people quit. They go to Amazon for six months. They've gotten their bonus. They don't like it there. They come back, but you lose that continuity. So I think that's the biggest struggle with the signing bonus. But um, there, there are people out there. It's just more expensive than it used to be.
Yeah, sounds like some of the difficulties the uh, trucking uh, driver shortages causes, right? People jumping for signing bonuses and parking trucks getting a job in the next half hour, sure. right? Um, but let's yeah. let's talk about those warehouses and the difficulty of, of, of managing those employees that are in there and the efficiencies that are there. Are you guys looking into the robotics in your physical warehouses, your the automation within those, uh, just to see where you guys are at on it? Yeah, so we're doing a, we're doing some. Uh, we've got a pilot ongoing uh, with one we're excited about. I don't want to mention a name, but I'll give you one that we had some experience with in the past, a couple years ago. Big name, and then the efficiency gain was sixteen percent increase in unit picks per hour just on the picking side. So picking side is about a third of your team. You got a sixteen percent increase. Like, yeah, it helps, but it's basically five percent, right? Like we're really far from automation solving the problem. Each piece of automation solves one part of the warehouse, but the warehouse has lots of problems and they in general don't solve it. They just augment a little bit. So the growth in a need for people is going to exceed the, the rollout of automation over the next few years. So there's going to be increased demand for warehouse labor for the, you know, through this decade, I would guess. Wow. Well, it hasn't. It's been a challenging time for for shippers as well. I, I'm seeing UPS is adding increases, uh, USPS adding increases. Uh, everyone this holiday season, it it's up. And you had a post here where you're talking about the 5.9 percent increase, but you're all but you're saying like you also have to add in the the fuel increases and the annual increase that got into that, which amount to much higher. What's going into that space for shippers right now? And are competitors like the newer integrators like LaserShip and I believe there's that collective that just formed. Are they going to have a place within the market? Yeah, Front Door Collective, I think it's the one you're talking about, which is a bunch of Amazon sellers. Uh, Amazon, um, you know, how they did those delivery companies that they formed. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, UPS has said they're there to make money, not to deliver lots of packages. So um, they're going to keep capacity artificially constrained. Um, FedEx tends to do whatever UPS does. So we need alternatives. Uh, so the alternatives are all regional. So even though LaserShip and OnTrack are now one company, I still think they're two regionals. I don't think they're going to be integrated for at least a couple of years. Uh, so what that means is if you've got your warehouse in California and you have to ship to New York, you still really only have three choices, UPS, FedEx, and USPS. I don't think that's going to change. I think what's changing is lots of people have moved from single warehouse to Uh, Lots of regional warehouses like we do. So if you have lots of regional warehouses, you can work with LSO, Lone Star Overnight in uh, Texas or um, Blue Streak in Florida and a bunch of other people like that. So I think that's the way it's going. If you can do that, you can keep your prices down. If you have one warehouse and you're reliant on UPS and FedEx as the only people that can get to the whole country, I think you're going to spend 8 to 10% more next year and then expect them to boost it again the next year. So it's a difficult place for shippers. So, Aaron, that's an interesting model, and I agree with you 100%, having those regional warehouses. Now, you, you have fluctuations in seasonality that are in there. In your model, and when people are looking at this, do you suggest or do you see a greater demand and a greater space for uh, the flex spaces there to flex up and, and, and down with the size of your inventory space? It depends what you're doing. If you're doing a B2B, pallet in, pallet out, sure. If you're doing e-com, no, because e-com, the quality matters more and mm-hmm. consistency of, ex- of experience for the customers. You're just not going to get it out of uh, a flexible space. So if you're doing B2B, someone like Flexi is, is awesome. And if you're selling you know, toilet paper or something real commodity, someone like a deliver uh, who also does sort of same sort of flexible model, it, it, for e-com, it's really good. If you have a brand, you want to 
someone who's going to use your packaging, consistent experience. Um, so just jumping between locations isn't really, isn't going to get you there. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think working with a player who has fixed space is a better gotcha. solution for those brands. Now, there's a conception out there by a lot of shippers that Instagram, Facebook are incredibly important. And we got a little insight into how important because they were down for hours about a month ago. Uh, from your seat, what did you see? How impactful? And I know this is like a sh- system shock and it doesn't really tell you what would happen if it completely was removed. But in that short period of outage time, did you see anything interesting happen? Yeah, it was like north of a 20% drop, which was insane. Um, like you said, there was other factors probably maybe people were less online or more focused on other things like i wouldn't put it a hundred percent you know to the the outage itself but um and that's also our ship so just that's our customers so our customers are not amazon they're not walmart um they're not apple right so we're dealing with people selling direct to consumer uh direct to consumer brands rely a ton on online marketing right that's their thing so yeah, if you, if you can't advertise on Facebook, on Instagram, you're going to lose 20% of your customers. Well, Aaron, I think we would argue, too, that especially in the e-commerce model and the expectations of consumers now, some of your best marketing is your fulfillment. How that arrives at someone's doorstep, when it arrives, what condition it arrives, what box it's in. Is mm-hmm. it in a gross poly bag like the thing you posted on, on LinkedIn earlier? So what should what are you warning shippers about? How much lead time do they need for Christmas? You don't have a bunch of upset sellers and they don't have a bunch of upset customers. What do they need to know when interacting with their warehouse and fulfillment partner? Yeah, I mean, earlier is better. Their surcharges are starting earlier, so it doesn't help you a ton, but certainly shipping earlier is better. I think we're going to see this week a couple of our major customers uh, in the fashion and beauty space already launch their sales now because they do cheap shipping. They'll do like a DHL e-commerce. So it's like a seven-day ship with their their cheapest shipping. So, um, And that's during regular season. It'll be slower now. So if you're using a service like that, you want to start early. If you're doing a, you know, if you're Apple and you're you're using DoorDash or whoever to ship from store, you can do whatever you want, right? But for most people, starting early is is going to help them. And I don't think it's going to be as bad as last year. I think there is more capacity out there from all these regionals, so things are moving around. Um, but it's always safer to, you know, get your get your sales in early. Um, and I think it's better for the customers as well because there's going to be a lot of out of stocks this year. And if you want to make sure you're one of the people that actually gets what you want, not a you know IOU, it's going to show up in Q2. Uh, better to shop early. Yeah, absolutely. So past the peak season, what do you see going into next year? When do we recover from this? I, there's more e-commerce than ever, so <laughs> it's going to stay busy. Um, there's you know, the warehouse space is being built as fast as possible, but it just takes a while. So there's a big shortage there. UPS and FedEx aren't really going to expand. DHL e-commerce announced 300 million expansion, $300 million mm-hmm. expansion. So that'll help a few others. But um, I think I think this will be at least another 12, 12 months uh, of this story. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Yeah. It's e-commerce. It's in a growth period. So there is nothing that'll slow it down, really. I mean, other than economic collapse, which none of us none of us want, right? Yeah, let's I mean, hope not. Let's hope not. No, we don't. Hey, you're doing great work over there, Aaron. Uh, when, when we get the cookies, uh, we will definitely review them. We'll <laughs> eat them on air. Um, uh, in the meantime, though, people who want to connect with you and they want to use your services, where do we send them to? Shiphero.com, S-H-I-P-H-E-R-O.com. And if you want to follow me and all the stupid things I post, just Go on Twitter, search for Aaron Rubin Shapiro, and I'm sure you'll find me. Good stuff. Excellent. Excellent. Aaron, thank Thank you very much. much. Take it easy.
All right, man. Let's go for a little big deal, little deal. Big deal. Little deal. All right, what do we got here? Okay, uh, Railheister back in style, apparently. Michael Vincent, trucker, Ooh. Beetle Bailey, he sent me this video of what appears to be some container doors on the rail car broken into and potentially pilfered. One forwarder tells me that they have two bike importers who have had a, uh, you can roll that video too. They've had- Closely, you will see some of Ooh. the doors on the containers wide open. Somebody has been breaking into the train cars. There was one. Oh yeah. I There's another one right there. Yeah two so far and you know what's interesting they're on the top stacked one so are these guys climbing up to the upper deck to open up these carts and if so why go to the upper deck instead of the bottom one unless you knew the cargo manifest and you knew what you were you were getting unless the seal was already broken on the ground before it ever got loaded yeah well i mean you know one of the things is when you're in shipping if you think you don't have a theft problem then you have a really big one right and if you think you have Just one then so you, you do know I did report it, it's this the union pacific railway emergency phone number on the website they are fully aware all right well, there's a lot of people citizen. who know what are in those containers and to pretend like somebody's not making a phone call every once in a while saying hey this container's got this in it you're fooling yourself yeah, well, they definitely knew. So I've had one major forwarder, one of the biggest forwarders in the world. They told me that they've had two bike importers who have had uh, combined 19 containers broken there into Will in July. All were all well on UP, Union Pacific. That's actually going to that Utah Inland port. So maybe mm. something to consider. Adam Hoosey, he treated, tweeted this about rail theft. Like, let's take a look here. He's talking about how there's uh, some organized rings walking around by Union Station in L.A. And they've been breaking into containers, too. Um, that looks like a lot of trash. I'm that looks like a whirlwind broke through there, but either way, big deal, little deal, thefts uh, potentially on the rise on the rail. I, it's it's a big deal, and one of the big deals about it is that the uh, you know the ability to track down these guys and get rid of them is very difficult, and a lot of times the authorities just say, forget it, BNSF's got their own police. Yeah. Because well, they got to police themselves. One of the challenges, one of the things a uh, forwarder was telling me about was that it's very hard to have anyone go after those because the local police don't care. The train's moving through. It's interstate commerce. Um, if, if it hasn't clear customs, it's kind of a federal thing, but the federal government doesn't really seem to care that much if there's just some pilfer. It's not like the entire container was stolen. Yeah. Um, the state police don't care either. No. So you're kind of on yeah. your own. No, and it looks like that that tweet, that picture of the tweet looks like it's like that's where they do their business. It's yeah. at one place all the time, right? I mean, it looks like it's still pretty, it's rare enough that you're kind of like maybe luck of the draw, you're fine, but I would consider the insurance. Yeah, I would definitely consider the insurance. Although, is the value enough when they do these? I mean, that's the thing. It's just, is it depends annoying? on what the bikes are. Bikes can be very, very expensive. That's true. Bikes right yeah. now. Yeah, there was one at seventy thousand TVs or something like that. Seventy thousand dollars worth of TVs in one heist. So, anyway, I guess they could be. Depends on what you break into, my friend. Uh, so here's a big deal, little deal for you. Uh, CDL Life reports that traffic fatalities spiked to largest six-month increase in reporting systems history, according to the NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. 20,160 people died in motor vehicle crashes in the first half of 2021, up 18.4% huh. over 2020. Largest number of projective fatalities in a period since 2006. Dooner. 
Big deal, little deal. Okay, so at first I was going to maybe challenge this and say, well, 2020, people didn't drive for the first, you know, from like March until May. There was yeah. a lot of traffic on the road. We actually spoke to a lot of truck drivers. But one thing that they said last year, especially on the, on the Road Dog show that I used to do, and but uh, we've had them come on this show too, and they were saying that yeah. what, it was great at first in the pandemic in terms of like the lack of traffic and everything. But he said once the four-wheelers got back on the road, everybody was driving like a bat out of hell. Everybody was uh, throwing caution to the wind. They were speeding. They were inconsiderate. And now the numbers bear out that, that that's happening. You know, 18.4%. If you just say, oh, that's a 2020 thing, maybe you, you factor in the pandemic. But as you said yeah. here since 2006, so I would say it's a big deal. I think people should slow down because obviously these accidents are happening. Yeah, you got to slow down. You got to use reasonable speed for what is going on. I agree with you. It's a big deal, man. I mean, dude, it's not worth it. It's usually you're not in a car and there's nothing worth the other end that's worth your life or somebody else's. Yeah, I would think not. I would think not. Usually we all get not. caught up. You get caught up in those. Do you ever get any road rage? Like, what's the worst road rage incident you've been in? Uh, I had a guy pull a gun on me while we were driving. Really? Yeah. yeah. He was pissed because I passed him. Oh, wow. And he was pissed, and then I made fun of him for being pissed, which I should have just ignored him. So, I, you know, I egged him on a little bit. You know, when I was 16, I was I was a waiter, and um, my best friend at the time, he uh, he was dating th this other girl who, who was a waitress. And I yeah. guess she was also dating some other guy. Yeah. And one day we're leaving work, my, myself and my buddy, and then um, and I had this, like, crappy Hyundai. It was like a Hyundai XL, uh, early 90s. One of the early ones. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it had no speed. Like, this thing's top speed was, like, 55 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. This guy's in a Camaro, and, like, all of a sudden, like, we pull a lot, and we see him following us and he's oh, like no. i think that's gary i think that's gary <laughs> and i was going like twisted metal mario kart all through town i had to drive through someone's backyard now that might have not been road rage that might have been some other kind of bed that's rage a little different rage yeah all right <laughs> hormone well, rage <laughs> yeah all right. i try to stay out of it as you mentioned the guns yeah Especially here in the yeah. south no packing, yeah so. everybody's packing don't, according don't to our research co more than seven in ten canadians have no qualms with using pineapple as a topping for pizza what a new research poll has shown in the online survey representative at the national Sample: Seventy-three percent of Canadians say they would definitely or probably eat pizza with pineapple. Up seven points since a similar poll was collected in July 2019. So pre-pand, after the pandemic, people more receptive to pineapple. Big deal, little deal. I think it's a big deal, and I think what makes it even bigger, Dooner, <laughs> yes. is that only half said they would consider eating a plant-based burger. So seventy percent of them, or seventy-three percent, said they would definitely or probably eat a pizza with pineapple. Yeah, but only. But 50% of them said, no, I ain't eating no plant-based burger. I mean, a pizza with pineapple is kind of plant-based, isn't it? I would think Dang. so. I don't understand it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what do they have here, too? The other thing that I noticed that was interesting about Canadians, because if you notice, if you've been to Canada, like, one of their, their top potato chips are, are uh, ketchup-flavored, ketchup-flavored potato Well, all chips. dressed, yeah. Yeah, those are good, yeah, too. Those, are, those good. are good, too. Well, it said here that Canadians, they, they've decided, it's gone down from 48% to 44%, the number of Canadians who are willing to eat a steak with ketchup. Well, okay, there's a redeeming there. I'll take it back down to a big deal because okay. they redeem themselves with that uh, four point slide on the ketchup on a steak. <laughs> do you do the pineapple on? Are, do you do the pineapple on pizza? Yeah, I don't care. I, I, I order the traditional type of pizza, but yeah, I'll eat pineapple on pizza. I did nothing around it. All right, no, no problems, no problems here. Do you? You do you, Canada? Yeah, you do it, man. Do it. <laughs> That's absolutely. So here we go. Uh, here's a big deal, little deal for you. One trucker is getting control of his weight by getting out of the driver's seat and pulling his truck tuner. We got. I think we got a video on this right here. Check him out. Wow. Right? So <laughs> this is Glenn Merrill, one of the local drivers. Uh, he's shown pulling a BDR transport truck that he drives. He ballooned up to 300 pounds when he saw he needed to do a change. This is how he started losing his weight, my friend, pulling that truck. 
What do you think about that, man? Well, I mean, I hope his hours of service aren't on the vehicles moving, so I hope his ELD is not going. That could be problematic for him. <laughs> uh, I hope he doesn't do all of his deliveries that way. I, I could say that, but I think that that's excellent. I mean, if that motivates him, and I know that you were sort of criticizing his form. You were saying that maybe he was cheating earlier before the show by pulling on the rope there. Well, I but don't think they would allow that in a strongman competition. You I, can't pull and, you know what I mean. I don't think you do. Uh, At first, I thought it was Trevor Milton back in the day showing the... Uh, showing uh, how you move a Nicola yeah, one. Yeah, it's rolling down the road, bro. Hey, we got one last meme to show you here. Throw it up on the board. It's, uh, it's the Anakin Padby one. They can't throw it up on the board. All right, we'll check it out on my LinkedIn because they can't do it. We're playing the outro. We got another one truck coming at you Wednesday, New Eastern Time. Thank you to all of our wonderful guests today. You can find this place for this show wherever you get your podcast. Just look up What the Truck. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Dune. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. Find him at Vincent the Dude. Tell them how to be, brother. Hey, peace and love. Spread it everywhere.